0: Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today I'm going to be doing another retro review. I'm going to be taking a look at one of my personal favorite gaming supplements from the Dungeons and Dragons library. And it's a basic supplement that I've actually talked about every now and then on the show. I've mentioned here and there a couple of the nifty little ideas and things that I found in this supplement, which is Creature Crucible 1, Tall Tales of the Wee Folk. It was released in 1989, and it was part of the Creature Crucible series. There were four supplements in this series designed for use with basic Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, The first was Tall Tales of the Wee Folk. I believe the second was The Sea People. Uh, The third was Top Ballista. And the fourth was Night Howlers. Now, I do own a copy of Top Ballista. I have seen The Sea People uh, in a bookstore back when I was a kid. So I remember seeing it, it's just I didn't pick it up because, honestly, it didn't really seem very interesting. Because the purpose of the Creature Crucible series was to let game masters and players do something different with basic D&D. You know, maybe you were getting kind of tired of playing you know elves and dwarves and halflings and humans so maybe you wanted to try something different so it gave you some ways on how to use different types of monster races as player characters now the sea people that was going to focus on stuff like uh, mermaids and tritons and Since you're going to be limited primarily to underwater adventures, it just didn't really appeal to me. Uh, Top Ballista, that one you meet the Sky Gnomes. There's also uh, Pegatars. They're like centaurs, except they have a Pegasus wings. And there were a few other races as well. And its main setting was this uh, floating city. The final creature crucible uh night howlers that was how to play lycanthropes and honestly i think it would be interesting i haven't seen it in a store ever and i've never went and looked for it on ebay so i'm not sure how much it goes for now as i recall uh tall tales of the wee folk usually when i've seen it on ebay too bad usually it's going to be about maybe 15 to 20 dollars somewhere around there so not a not a terribly expensive supplement but I'll be honest I've gotten a lot of enjoyment out of it so uh, hopefully if uh this review if maybe you think this uh supplement sounds interesting you'll go and pick it up and if you do hopefully you will get as much enjoyment out of it as I have over the years. So the uh, physical product itself, there's three parts to the the product. Uh, first, the cover, which like with a lot of your old uh, d and modules and supplements, uh, it, it wasn't all attached as one book. You had the fold-out cover, which I actually like uh, the way they did it for Tall Tales of the Wee Folk. Now, the front cover um, is done by an artist, Keith Parkinson. And honestly, I really like the picture. It's a couple of guys riding what look like uh, dire wolves through a forest. So it's a nice picture. My only complaint is it really doesn't say much about the book itself. So I, I wonder... Why they chose that to be the cover. Again, not saying it's a bad picture. I just don't think that it really fits the mood and atmosphere and the content of the book. Now it is, it folds out to three sections. So well, that's one of the nice things about the uh, outer cover. It can double as a game master screen if needed. On the inside, it does have several Uh, helpful reference charts. It lists the experience point advancements for the uh, various creatures and also has uh, some other uh, general information like movement and encumbrance charts, uh, the prime requisites, and uh, also talks a little bit about woodland spellcasters, has some helpful information there. Uh, it's very well formatted the border for this as well as the other books uh interior border is uh, mosses and plants so you can you really get the idea of it being a uh, you know this deep forest that most people don't go and on uh, one of the pages in the fold out they also do have a map there for the dreamlands so if you're familiar with the Mistara campaign setting, it's around the region of Elfheim. So, not not really uh that big of a deal. I I mean, I suppose it can be helpful. I'm sure they probably just kind of threw it in there cuz they didn't know what to put on the last part of the fold out. Uh and it it adds a nice little dash of color to it. The other two parts of the product are the Dungeon Masters book And then the Adventures Booklet. So you have two separate books in there. Now, the first one, it's called the the Dungeon Master's Booklet, but it's more accurate to say that it is the player supplement as well because uh, there's actually a a lot of content that they cram into 64 pages here. It's well formatted. Uh, I always found it very enjoyable to read. And one of the reasons that I... I really enjoy the uh, uh, reading it is it has some very good artwork in it done by Valerie Velusek. So she would, I know she would go on to do some uh, art for second edition uh, when they started to re-release the books. Um, I'm not sure what other work she has done, but very talented artist. And I think the style that she used for the interior images just really perfectly captures the mood of the book so taking a look through the first book here's how it's presented so as we start to take a look into the book it gives you a little bit of an introduction and tells you how to use this supplement that you know again it's designed for game masters and players who maybe want to do a little something different and from there it gives you some rules for creating your uh, creature heroes. Um, There's two categories of creature heroes in here. There's woodland beings. So these are your uh, mortal creatures like centaurs and treants and wood imps. And then it has your folk, which we'll be getting into in a moment. Now, the way each section is laid out it starts out with an introductory uh, prose section where you're given an introduction to the race by uh, some of the characters that are mentioned li- later in the, in the book. So, first we have Eulerahole, and I'm not sure how that's pronounced, but uh, she is a centaur. And she uh, talks a lot about the very the centaurs, of course, and uh, some of the couple of the other races. We also get to hear from uh, Lotus, who is a dryad, and then we also get to hear from some characters that, well, if you've ever read the works of William Shakespeare, specifically *A Midsummer Night's Dream*, uh, you'll recognize them. Uh, You get to hear a little bit from uh, Oberon, who is the uh, king of the fairy world. And you also get to hear from his faithful sidekick, Robin Goodfellow. Uh, They do also mention Oberon's wife, uh, Queen Titania, in the book as well, though she doesn't give any of the prose introductions, but they do have her statted out as well. So each section tells you a little bit about the the race, it tells you what types of armor and weapons they can use, um, how they would make their saving throws, and it also has their advancement charts for uh, their how much experience they need as well as how many hit dice they they have. Now when you're playing these creature characters, there is one thing that they did have to to do that's that's different from a standard DD character for most of these creatures they start out at a negative experience level and then they have to gain a certain amount of experience points to work their way up to a normal monster uh, which would be you know how they're presented in the you know the dungeon master's guide where it had the monsters in uh, in basic so you would assume that your characters, that when they first start out, um, they are you know younger, more uh, immature members of their species. So they they've still got some growing to do. But after that, once they get to the, n- the normal monster level, they're going to be equivalent to a monster as presented in a you know again the monster manual or uh, the the dungeon master's guide in the case of uh, basic D and D. And then they start to work their way up where they start to progress as a, a normal character. It also has rules for woodland spellcasters. And there's the, basically there uh you could multi-class for these woodland creatures. The so you could either be a, a Wicca, which would be similar to a magic user, or you could be a shaman, which would be similar to a cleric only you don't get the ability to turn undead. So centaurs are pretty straightforward. Uh, They're basically fighters, but they can progress as either a a Wicca, a Shaman, or they can even do both uh, if they want to spend the experience points for it. The main problem with uh, centaurs, of course, is... They can't use regular armor, so they have to have, you know, barding custom made for them. Uh, next, there are the dryads, and not nothing really too special about them. Um, they do get some magic abilities uh, that you see in the like you see in the monster manual, um, and then other than that, they're again they're more they would be more or less equivalent to. Fighters, um, except that they've got uh, limited uh, weapon and armor capabilities. Next are fauns or satyrs, and you know they their main ability is that uh, there's some types of magic musical instruments that they can get uh, special use out of. Uh, one of their main abilities is that they can cause fear or other magical effects with magical with musical instruments. So it's it can be used for more than just fear, though. The way it's described in the book is it brings out the natural impulses and a target. So while you could certainly turn that into fear, I suppose you could also turn that into other emotions as well, uh, such as making someone fall in love with you or maybe even uh, bravery or courage uh, as well. So I think that could have some interesting role-playing applications. Next is probably my favorite of the races in the a woodlands creature section and I have played this character type of character uh, a couple times and that is a Shahau. A uh, Shahau is essentially an owl that's about the size of a halfling. However, they do gain the ability to cast clerical spells. Like clerics though, they don't start with any spells. So you got a Uh, get at level, well, your second level before you can actually start to cast any spells. And uh, they do have their natural attacks of claws and bites, which do get progressively uh, stronger as the character gains levels. And as you might guess, since they are basically just owls, that does limit their armor and weapon usage. Uh, Basically, they can't use any weapons, but it is possible to have specially made armor for them. Next, there's the Treant. And this one, I've never played a Treant, and I, I can see how they're not really very attractive to play because while they are powerful, you know, again, they're basically these walking tank-like trees, uh, and they, you know, they don't need armor, they don't need weapons, uh, and they their armor and damage does get progressively... Uh, better, and they also gain a lot more hit points. Uh, most characters, they stop gaining hit points at level nine, but um at their uh, fullest potential, a Treant actually gets 12 hit dice before they start just adding three hit points per level. I The reason I think they're not necessarily a a race you're going to see played very often. And that's because, well, they're trees. That's going to very much limit where they can adventure to. And, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine, okay, how are we going to get a 20-foot tall tree person into a dungeon with us? And the last of the woodland creatures are the wood imps. And these are, you know, short little uh, guys that are only about a, I think they're only about a foot or so high. Uh essentially they're fighters. They can use whatever uh, armor and weapons they want. It's just they have to be scaled down to their size. Well, from here, it moves on to the uh, fairy folk. And the book does actually give some uh, good explanations for what fairy society is like and uh, how fairies, uh, what their general outlook is like as well as how they interact with different mortal races. Now, one of the things that can be challenging about uh, allowing these creatures in a campaign is fairies do have the ability to turn invisible, or their innate ability is called invisibility to mortals. So, as a result you know, you're going to have them sneaking around, always invisible unless they attack. So, you know, that could be, I can see how that would be very unbalancing in a campaign or how it has the potential to be unbalancing. Um, Some fairies do get spell casting abilities. And what's interesting is that they have their own spell list, which is a combination of some clerical spells, some... Uh, magic user spells but uh, they also have some unique abilities which some of them really aren't that uh, special but they could have some interesting applications um, like one of them is called chill which you point at the, the target creature and they start to feel cold and they take a small amount of damage per round. So the nice thing about an ability like this is the fairy can remain invisible while using it. So it's something that you use more to kind of freak out or try to scare away an intruder. The first of the fae folk is uh, Brownie and they're more or less uh, fighters and craftsmen. Uh, Same thing with the uh, leprechauns, which, you know, they've got You know, they they're not too much different from uh, brownies. The only difference is they don't is that they actually have a little bit of spell casting ability. Next, there's pixies and sprites, and the the difference between these two is that uh, pixies are the fighters and sprites are the magic users. So, if you want to be a a small fairy creature that fights, you're gonna be a a pixie. You're gonna you want to cast spells. You're gonna be a, a sprite. And one of the special abilities that pixies have is that they can remain invisible while attacking. So, unless you have the ability to detect uh, invisibility, yeah, that that pixie he's gonna be running around and flying around you and stabbing you or shooting you, and you're going to have a hard time hitting him. The next fey creature is the Puka. This is another one of my favorite races. Uh, essentially what a Puka is, it looks like an animal. They can look like a normal animal or a bipedal version of a normal animal, but they actually have some pretty powerful spell casting abilities um as they start to engage as they start to progress they gain the ability to manipulate time so that allows them to do things like haste a target slow a target they can age um objects they can heal uh they can even st- stop time at higher levels Another one of their abilities is they can uh, create nightmares in a a sleeping creature, a sleeping target. Now there is one typographical error that I always thought was kind of humorous here. Um, In this section where they have the Puka advancement chart, uh, they have experience. They start out with, they don't need any experience points, but they've got 4,000 hit dice. And then once they get to to a normal monster level, it drops down to 2d8. So yeah, they obviously a little typographical error they missed. I I always thought that was funny. Uh, Next, there are the uh, She. And the She come in two different types. There are Warrior She and Rogue She. This is probably one of the easier... races to play mainly because they're a little shorter than the average human so they're not going to have any problems with uh getting you know using most types of weapons but armor on the other hand is a different story because uh they are allergic to most types of metal so um they can only use uh, metal uh, armor that's made of like I think brass or bronze. They they can't use anything made of iron. At least not until it's at least like plus three or better in enchantment. So the of course the warrior shea, or she they're going to be basically just your fighters, and then uh, the rogue she are going to have abilities similar to a thief of that level. And finally, there are the wood drakes. Now, this is another one of those races that I've played. And I think that it's probably because it can be a very easy race to play. Now, a Wood Drake, their natural form is they look like a man-sized wyvern. However, they can also change into an elf or a halfling form. So, that makes it a lot easier for them to blend into... Uh, different societies. Now, one of the things that is actually quite interesting about the Woodrakes is the introductory text to the that section gives a little bit of their background, and it refers to the Blackmore culture. And uh, now, I've always found the concept of Blackmore to be interesting. I haven't seen any of the supplements that talked about it, but the way i understand it is that uh blackmore was this ancient but highly advanced civilization um so after they caused a, a cataclysm it was decided that the you know the fae folk would need people that would keep watch on uh mankind and that's where we get the drakes so uh in here we just have the wood drakes which can turn into either elves or halflings. Um, there are also mandrakes in the uh, one of the monster books, and they can turn into men. And then there's cold drakes, which I believe are the ones that turn into dwarves or gnomes, one of the two. Now, there is also a short section for skills, uh, because... This was released in again '89, so uh, not too long after second edition came out. Um, So by now, weapon proficiency rules and non-weapon proficiency rules were, uh, you know, very common. So they did introduce a few new skills in here as well. Um, Some of them would go very well with different races, like for example, craftsmen. Uh, that one is you're going to find a lot with the you know the leprechauns and brownies as they're the craftsmen of the of the fae world as the book ends it talks a little bit about some of the different types of equipment there's a few new magic items but they also talk about uh, the they also have a section called personality of the forests um because they talk again more about the fairy culture and then they give you the game stats, as well as a little background information for some of the characters you've already met, uh, such as Oberon, um, Ulriho, Lotus, and Robin Goodfellow. And then it also has uh, Titania. Uh, there's a Shahal Philosopher in there. And then there's also a high-level uh, uh, Seder or Fawn in there as well. So... Uh, Like I said, they actually pack quite a lot of useful information into just uh, 64 pages there. And then this brings us to the second booklet. And this one just has a few adventures in it. There is also some helpful information here for if you are maybe running a second edition campaign and you want to work some of these woodland creatures into a second edition campaign. Oh yes! Before I go on, um, just a public service announcement. You may remember that I mentioned the sh- the, uh, the puka, one of the Fey creatures. Take it from me: if you decide to introduce this material into your gaming group, if you've got someone in your gaming group who specializes in playing annoying obnoxious characters, do not, I repeat, do not let them play a puka. My wife can be like that. She's been known to play, you know, kind of these obnoxious characters. And she played a puka for one event and, or one campaign. And the, the thing that, the reason that they were, they can be really obnoxious well, as I mentioned before, all these Fey creatures, well, with the exception of the uh, the Wood Drake, they have the ability to turn invisible. So a Puka, they can actually choose who they want to be visible to. So I remember when my wife was playing a Puka, um, she selected one party member and she was only visible to that person. So yeah, like I said, <laughs> don't let someone who plays obnoxious characters. Play a puka. Trust me on this one. So, moving on. Uh, Like I said, it does have the information on how to uh, incorporate it into uh, 2nd edition. And then it has several adventures. Now, I really like the way the adventures were written here. Uh, There are a couple that are intended to be short adventures that you could very easily play uh, within a gaming session or two. Uh, and these adventures are actually very, you know, they're they are detailed out. So just like, uh, you know, an adventure you'd see in a module. There's also a few other adventures in there where they're just intended as one-shot encounters. So the reason I like those is because they can very easily be inserted into uh an adventure a couple of them involve combat but there's also a couple of those short adventures that uh actually uh, have a fair degree of role playing that you can use to uh that you can try to work with in your with your group so the first adventure in this uh booklet is called the Hanging Hideout. And this is one that it is, again, just a short little adventure that you could probably run uh, within a single game session. So, eh, you know, maybe about four to six hours. And it involves uh, adventuring inside of a an abandoned Shahal hideout. The next one, Sith Bruak. Uh, this adventure... It involves an encounter with a red cap, which is an evil brownie. And this is another one where it's designed to be just a, a single encounter. So you could very easily uh, do it as a, you know, like your characters are settling down to camp for the night. The next adventure, A Quiet Day Spent Fishing, This one involves uh, going fishing for a a Loch Ness monster-like creature that inhabits a lake. There's also a couple other interesting things in there, like uh, some of the fish in this lake are actually intelligent and can talk. The next uh, adventure, Cattle of the March. This is not really an encounter, so to speak, at least... Not a combative one. This is one of those nice little, uh, role playing encounters where it's very easy to work into your existing campaign. Uh, essentially the plot of that one is the adventurers are hired to find out why the cattle, uh, from this, you know, this baron's kingdom, why they keep, uh, getting sick, getting all withered up and and dying. The next adventure is called A Blight on the Forest. And again, this one is not really fully, uh, developed. It's more of a, an idea that you can use for a final encounter for a campaign. Or at least I could see it as being a good final encounter. Uh, it, it involves a mysterious plague that has been sweeping the forest. And the, you find out that there's a, a high-level treant who turned evil, and he's the one that's behind all this. So since he's a very high-level treant, uh, 34th level, because in basic D&D you could go up to 36th level, yeah, this is going to be the kind of uh, adventure for intended for high-level characters that need a good challenge. Another one of the adventures in here, A Night Out in the Forest, Again, this is kind of like the Sith uh, Bruach adventure in that it's something that you can do very easily just as a, you know, your characters are settling down to camp for the night and then you can throw this encounter at them. And while you, you could certainly fight your way through this encounter, you could also role-play your way through it as well. Well, this brings me to the last adventure in the booklet, which is one of my favorite D&D ventures I've ever done. It's called The Lost Seneschal. And the plot of this adventure is that the Baron's tax collector has gone missing, so the party is hired to find him. It's an introductory adventure. It's written for character levels 1 through 3. Now, the reason I like this adventure so much is because... It has a good balance between combat and role-playing. There are some encounters in there that you're going to have to fight your way through. There's also a few that you you could actually role-play your way through. And honestly, you do want to role-play your way through it. uh, Because, well, just to give you a little spoiler alert. Now, like I said, this is an adventure for 1st through 3rd level characters but one of the advent one of the encounters involves a giant that has 90 hit points and that uh when he grabs a character he bites him for 2d10 damage so yeah obviously a first level character even maybe a second or third he could very easily kill a character a low level character in a couple of attacks so that's the type of encounter that, you know, it's really going to force the players to do some creative thinking in order to uh in order to, you know, to to succeed. One of the things that I like so much about that adventure in addition to just how well it's written, but I have done that adventure several times. I would have to say that I've probably led at least five different groups through the adventure and no two playthroughs of that were alike. Each group that I I took through this adventure had their own way that they chose to solve some of the encounters, including some that, while well, they were obviously fighting their way through, when they probably shouldn't have, probably shouldn't have fought their way through those adventures, but they managed to succeed. So, hey, all is well. Well, that's about all I have to say about Tall Tales of the Wee Folk for now. Very well written supplement, very enjoyable to read. Has a lot of good artwork in it. As I said, very well formatted, very easy to read. And I highly recommend picking it up sometime. You know, even if you don't think you're going to use it uh, for like a woodland campaign, there are still some good ideas in there that you can use for a, you know, that you can use for just a, you know, a normal standard D&D campaign. So with that said, I'd like to thank you for tuning in and have a good evening or morning or afternoon. Whatever it is, wherever you are. And happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POIGamestudio.